0: Within this process that we have, how can I help you become the best version of yourself? So if my job as a seller is to go out and listen to my buyers to understand the things that are most important to them and then help them get that, my job as a manager is to listen to my sellers, to understand what are the most important things to them
1: and then help them get that. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. I have an ally in my mission of creating an army of enlightened sales individuals trying to make a difference in the world, making an impact, being focused on this and doing it the right way, which is why I'm so excited to have Andy Paul joining me today as he consults and coaches CEOs and sales teams to teach them how to maximize value and the power of their selling to rapidly increase their sales. Now, his latest book called Sell Without Selling Out is such a powerful framework for us to learn that you can sell in a way that is gonna be aligned to your values. It's a big thing that I support, and he actually breaks it down into a framework for seizing control of how you sell and rejecting all those old ideas that really don't feel good, and guess what? Probably don't work as much as we think they do. Now, this is not his first time writing a book. He's had multiple award-winning books such as Zero Time Selling and Amp Up Your Sales, which were both Amazon bestsellers. He is here with us, He has worked with companies that are startups, Fortune 1000, you name it. He's here to educate all of us as well. Andy, thank you so much for being here. Jason, thank you for having me. I know you've been on a book promotion marathon. You've been in the (laughs) selling portion of the book. I have a selfish question since I also released a book is, have you noticed anything that you had to say no to in order to promote the book, but not selling out in the way that you speak about in your book?
0: Great question. No, not so far probably have stayed away from those things anyway, just through <laughs> inclination. So now it's all been very organic, and we've really been fortunate. When we launched the book, there's just a community of people that got behind the message and helped us carry some of the message forward in a way that I didn't always have to be the point
1: person on it. So that was great, too. I love this aspect of building the community, having you to support it, and actually not even having to face this dilemma, because I feel, especially if you're just getting started, and it could be a book, it could be your product, it could be just starting the business, there's temptation to cut corners, to do sales in a way that you're trying to get more results than maybe your capacity can allow, maybe going more into the dark side of selling, and and it feels tempting, right? So why is it that we're often tempted to use these, call it, darker arts of selling.
0: Yeah, what I call selling out? I think it's a combination of things. One is it's the way we socialize people to think about sales, right? So you look at popular culture, TV shows, movies. Yeah, as you look at how salespeople are portrayed, which, even though stereotypical, we all know stereotypes to some degree, there's some germ of truth there, that, yeah, the stereotype that bedevils salespeople as being sort of sleazy, unethical, untrustworthy, pushy, purely self-motivated, or self-interested, unfair—sure, to some degree—but on the other hand,
1: it's deserved. Yeah, I can only think of you know the key example being something like the Wolf of Wall Street, which is literally a company that glorifies scamming people, right? Right,
0: and this guy makes a living training salespeople today, right? So, Jordan Belfort. So. Yeah, for some people, maybe they think that's the way to go. I, My experience, my work personal and my work with companies and salespeople across the world is just, yeah, that's not how people want to buy.
1: Yeah, it's not how we want to be sold to. And we want to have doing business with people who like that actually take care of us. And so what got you inspired to actually put this book together? Because a lot of people have to embrace sales, whatever it is, the role they do. It's not just a small segment of the population need to do sales. We all have to do it in some capacity. Yet, we want to be able to do it in a way that feels good, yet that's not necessarily the path that we're being shown.
0: Right. Well, the motivation for the book came from, again, sort of the sum of the work I've done and the conversations I've had on my podcast, you know, 1,043 episodes so far, is that we're not getting any better at selling. That at an age where there's all this great technology that's coming to sales, sales automation, marketing automation, that what we've done is used that great technology just to automate bad behaviors. And rather than taking the technology as an opportunity to say, well, let's reset how we engage with our buyers. Let's reset the experience we create for our buyers and how we sell to them. And so, yeah, the motivation came from saying, "Like we're just not getting better. And why is that? And it was this reliance on these old fashioned obsolete, what I call salesy behaviors that you and I talked about previously. With the book, I'm trying to say, look, let's just draw a line in the sand, right? Because these behaviors, selling out or salesy, have no value for your buyers. And so if they have no value for their buyers, by definition, they have no value for you. So we could all stop today. Anybody that feels like they're being pressured into using sales behaviors or they're just doing it, literally could stop today, go cold turkey. And you know what? They wouldn't be any worse off. And if that's the case, if we could just dispense with them like that, then let's do it.
1: Does it require us to take a leap of faith to stop those behaviors? Like if you've had your habits, you have your process, are we expecting to see a negative sales return in the short run if you start actually just taking away all the practices that you might have inherited?
0: That's a great question. Possibly. In some instances, possibly. But the payback in the long term or even the near term would be, is so substantial that it's worth it. You know, I had an experience with a company where I was not running this division by a sort of number two person in this division, and this company used these bad behaviors. And end of the month, end of the quarter, huge discounts to get customers to take delivery of product before they needed it, and this, yeah, not unusual behavior that people have heard of before. And we got to a point where it just wasn't working anymore. And I hated. I was about <laughs> getting ready to leave. I was just like, I can't do this. Well, company got rid of the CEO, changed the management. I sort of put in charge this division. And I said, look, we're just not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do the end of the month discounting spree. We're not going to do the end of the quarter. Because we've been training our customers to expect those discounts, right? Through our behavior. And yeah, this is a public company, so we had to hit our numbers. But there's a little bit of pain for a month or two while we retrain the customers that it's just going to be different now and retrain the salespeople and, and more importantly, retrain sales managers because what we found is the all impetus for discounting came more from sales managers than for salespeople because the sales manager said, I got hit my bonus. And the sales rep says, I've made my number for the quarter. Manager goes, but I haven't. And then suddenly you're out discounting.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. So the incentives were all in the wrong place. And it's fascinating to me because I often speak about, let's say you had a group of 100 potential leads that you could close. We're very much focused on saying like, okay, if we're closing, let's say five, let's get that number to 10 and really squeeze it as much as possible. But we forget about the 90 that didn't buy at that point. They go out there, they talk. They can buy later. They might not be looking for the product right here, right now. And it's almost in the process of doing the squeeze, which you might double the sales there. You've alienated 90 people that would never do business with you again because you've decided to use those salesy selling out tactics. (laughs) And this is endemic, unfortunately, or maybe pandemic at this point.
0: among B2B selling is this, yeah, we're going to put a lot of stuff in the top of the funnel, right? We're actually, we'll use the tools we have. Email tools and outbound calling tools and so on. We're going to generate a lot of activity at the top of the funnel, and things we don't have to be really that good at selling, and we'll close a certain fraction of them. And it's to your point, but the rest of them have this lousy experience with you. And what are they thinking about their experience with you when they finally decide they are going to buy? That's not going to be good, right? To your point, they may not come back. So I think you see companies are sort of slashing and burning a lot of their total available market through these types of bad behaviors. And then when the customer comes back around and says, yeah, I'm really ready to buy it this time, they don't want to deal with you. They have choices, increasing number of choices.
1: Yeah, and a lot of availability of information. And I wanted to kind of create a box here to talk a bit about this selling out and this sales. I mean, you've talked about creating pressures based on the quotas that you have and making people buy before they're ready to receive delivery. We're talking about technology accelerating the bad behaviors, maybe it's like blast emailing, automating connection requests on LinkedIn. What are other kind of the big bad salesy behaviors or selling out behaviors that we should realize, hey, we need to take this out of our inventory?
0: Yeah, so you sort of think of the way like people pitch or they connect on social media. I know almost immediately when someone offers to connect with me on LinkedIn, I can tell which ones are going to send me a pitch afterwards. That's typical. Or lack of preparation before you reach out and talk to somebody. My favorite story, and this has happened to me twice now, (laughs) once after I'd been telling the story for a while, and then it happened again just recently, is somebody reaches out to me on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, remember they're on the platform, And they say, hey, Andy, we just looked at your profile, and we think you'd be an ideal candidate to start a podcast. (laughs) Now, for people not listening, I have had a podcast. I'm one of the early sales podcasters. had one for seven years, over a thousand episodes. We've got a pretty big audience. It's like, really? You're on LinkedIn. If you just spent five seconds looking at my profile, you might have figured out that, yeah. (laughs) And so, the first person that did this to me, I don't usually reply to bad messages in this case, but I responded. I said, Come on, man, you're on the platform. Take a second and just look at my profile. He says, We don't have time for that. He replied, Yeah, we don't have time for that. So that's an example. You know, there was a guy last week that commented on one of my posts talking about his interaction with sellers. He said, Look, I'm taking a break from salespeople. I mean actually he said I'm avoiding them like the plague is what he really said. And he just sort of goes through this list of things. You know, this guy called me today and wouldn't take no for an answer. I forget there's one about handling something as wasn't the no as an answer, as an objection, but well, not something else he said, you know, handling as an objection. Well, it wasn't an objection, it's just a statement of fact. It sort of goes as, you know, had no idea who I was, hadn't prepared. And this list of like seven or eight things all constitutes are sort of selling out, right? And it's just all about the seller flogging the product. And so I Talk about in the book is as I said it's, it's really based on how we frame what we're doing in our own mind. So if we think our job as sellers is, as lots of sellers believe, their job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy their product. Well, you're going to adopt one set of behaviors. You don't really care what the buyer is concerned about because your job is to go persuade them to buy your product. Whereas I believe the job of a salesperson or anybody that's selling anything in any dimension is to listen to the buyer, to understand what are the most important things to that buyer, you know, in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they're trying to achieve, and then help them get that. That's our job. That's a completely different perspective than I'm gonna go out and flog my product versus I really want to understand what's most important to you. And if I do that, then I can work with you to create a vision of what success would look like when you invest in my product and service. Because when you think about it, when people make the decision to buy something, they're not buying a product or service. They're buying this vision of what it's going to be like to use the product or service. I can't form that with a buyer if I'm sitting there trying to pressure them to buy my product, right? But if I'm working with the customer and said, look, okay, we've made this connection. So in the book, you know, I have four pillars of selling in. So the opposite of selling out, selling in, this connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity. So You connect with the buyer on a human level. You build an element of trust. Where the trust is really important is that the buyer then is willing to provide more information to you, right, about what's most important to them. They're not going to do that just because you ask a question. Hey, tell me what's most important to you today. (laughs) They're not going to answer that. You you earned the right to stick your nose into their business. And so it takes some patience, takes some questioning. But when you have that right and give given permission... Then you can dig deep. You can get that point where you can ask the questions to surface, what are the most important things to this buyer? And having got to that level of understanding, when you make somebody feel understood, huge source of value for them, right? Well, then you can work with them to co-create this idea. Of, okay, well, what are the choices and trade-offs you're going to make as you create this vision of what success looks like? And you do that with the buyer. So, in a persuasion based sale, the buyer is a target. In selling in, they're person. And there's a huge difference
1: between the two. I'm always fascinated by the terminologies we use in sales, which often refer to weapons, bombs, explosions, <laughs> closing. Oh, well, Hunter. Hunter, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, my God. There's apps that exist called Hunter, and it's how to get somebody's email. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> but the thing is that's so funny about
0: the term of Hunter is... Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin, and that's deer hunting capital of the world, or at least of the United States. And somebody had been talking about the term hunter, and I said, well, this just doesn't sound right. I think we're overdoing it. So I went online, did a little research about it. Okay, well, deer hunting. So when you look at a description of deer hunting, what people do is they go in the woods. Maybe they have a favorite spot they've gone before. They build a stand where they're going to stand and hunt deer. And then they go out and they put out, like, doe urine or some other attractant on the trees in the area around it in order to bring traffic to them, the deer to them. And they shoot from the stands. Well, hunting these days is inbound, right? It's not being proactive and going out. They're doing everything to attract the deer to them. And it's sort of true with duck hunting and other things. Is... Everybody has this vision of people going out and hunting and stalking an animal. It's like, no, hunting these days, we bring the animals to us. And so the whole terminology as we use it in sales is really sort of outdated.
1: It is updated, but it's also labeling and kind of dissociating the humanity around the sales. Like hunting, the objective is the animal you hunted dies. What are we doing? We're salespeople, we're trying to help people. Yet all our terminology ends up with something dead, conquered. I always bring up this example. This is a marketing or direct response one. They talk about how you should have a low price product so you could actually get people to make an initial purchase. They become a client and they'll be more likely to make a big purchase. And what do we call this? We call this a tripwire which is, you know, a landmine trigger. I'm like, what are we trying to do? Of course, salespeople get a negative label if we have these war terms, hunting terms.
0: Well, and not just that, though, is, yeah, you know, one of the things that we we need to do as an imperative in sales is have more diversity in the ranks of the people that are selling. And, yeah, you know, one of the initiatives is and I'm a huge proponent of this is bringing more women into sales. Yeah, when they hear terms that are you know militaristic and hunting and so on, yeah, it sort of turns them off. If I do have to be that way to be in sales, you do know, I have to be this you know, macho, aggressive person. No, you don't.
1: There's a seductive toxicity. I'll label it that way. When you're part of a sales team, you're very young. And let's say you have a sales culture that is very aggressive and very raw, raw. I remember in my early twenties, you know, I started selling things that I might not be so proud of. And in the moment I felt very motivated to do so. And the culture was definitely enabling me and rewarding me for my performance. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like there's actually a lot to be done on the culture level, but there's a lot of self-awareness and work to be done on the individual because it's only when I grew up and I realized the error of my ways that I really, you know, I turned around and wrote a book about selling with love, you know, (laughs) but do you feel like we necessarily need to go through that kind of lesson learning, misguided salesy path to realize that it's wrong? Or I'm hoping that people, when they pick up a copy of your book, can completely avoid it altogether and step into the better way.
0: Well, yes, I have hope that we can change it, but it really depends on the individuals in the company, right? There are some companies that have the right culture that understand that. I'll give you an example. I worked for a CEO this quite a while ago, founded this company, and he said, look, I just don't believe that people in sales should feel like they have a sword hanging over the back of their neck all the time. And he's grown this into a multi-billion dollar corporation. And in fact, they don't even have a revenue function You know, that's designated separate. It's all integrated throughout the company, and lots of people take on sales roles and so on. So it's possible to do it differently and be very successful with it. But I think that, again, people just sort of assume this is the way it needs to be. They assume that salespeople are all this way. And to a point you made earlier, I made a big point throughout my career to bring engineers, you know, real technical people, electrical engineers, into sales. I was selling a technical product. I would to help. But their initial reaction was always, well, I can't do that. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I can't convince people to buy something they don't want to buy. I said, perfect, because that's not what we do. Yeah, you know, your job is to help people solve a problem. Oh, well, I can do that. That's what I do in my work every day. Yeah, that's our job. Oh, yeah, I can do that. And then you always get pushback from other people in the organization saying, well, they don't have the people skills. I'm like, well, what do you mean? They've got a family. They've got friends. They obviously know how to connect with other people oh you mean they're not the blustery outgoing hunter aggressive closer type sure they're not but just watch and almost to a person they all succeeded very nicely
1: there's almost that stereotype that it has to be this like super extroverted type of person to be a salesperson but again the media i think has painted the picture of what that's supposed to look like and i could just imagine them creating the movie of, you know, Billy, the account executive, who's just really good to his customers, always delivers on time and has a steady workflow, takes care of his family. That would be the most uneventful movie of just someone doing a good job serving clients. And I don't feel like we highlight a lot. Like, do we have any media examples of great salespeople that are doing it in the way that you preach about, that I preach about, and so many of the guests I bring on the show preach about? It's a good question. I don't know. Jim on The Office? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. I think we need to get into Netflix, Andy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. There was like a guy about five, six years ago that was doing this short series of YouTube videos where he was deconstructing sort of famous sales scenes and taking the lessons from them. But the lessons are sort of, in my mind, are like, not the real positive lessons. But I think also think, to your point, is The Lamb of Wall Street wouldn't make a very good movie. The bigger message in the book is that there are people who have different personalities than me than you, that you know, people are much more outgoing than I am, that maybe seem on the surface like they fit that mold of the more salesy person, have been very successful. And the lesson is that we all do it our own way. And part of the problem that we experience these days in sales is that managers want to use the technology that's available to make everybody into a clone of another person. So if I've got my conversational intelligence system and we're listening to calls and we annotate the calls, then we say, look, Jason, he's our best person here. And when he gets into a discovery call, you know, at this point in the call, you know, minute one, he says this phrase. And that just locks the buyer in. They give us the answers we need. So everybody needs to use this phrase at it's an interesting guide, but it doesn't work that way. Cause I'm not you, right? If they're giving that to me, it's like, well, I'd take that and say, okay, how can I, you know, modify that to fit what I do in the way I sell? But that gets discouraged more and more these days. And instead, as managers, instead of leaning into the technology and using it just to make everybody an interchangeable cog in a sales machine, your job is really to say, within this process that we have. How can I help you become the best version of yourself? So if my job as a seller is to go out and listen to my buyers to understand the things that are most important to them and then help them get that, my job as a manager is to listen to my sellers, to understand what are the most important things to them, and then help them get that. it's really the same motion.
1: I really love that, which brings me to one thing that I have often face is particular people that are just getting started in sales, we're looking for guidance, we're looking for direction. I have so many people that reach out to me and they're like, can I get scripts? Can I get the step-by-step? Can I get the prescription of what I can do exactly, not deviate from it? Because we feel like we need to have some sort of foundation. But what I love about what you're teaching is first, you need to have the mindset of realizing that you don't need to be salesy, you don't need to sell out. And when you're going out there with the intention of serving and the intention of solving the problem, it's already a great foundation to start with but are there some certain tools that you would guide people towards paying attention to so at least you feel a bit of confidence even if you're at the beginning stages?
0: Another good question. Well, I think that one thing is that as a seller, even at the start of your career, if you're going to focus on one thing, it's learning how to connect with other people and show a sincere interest in them. I think that if you start off your career and fall too heavily on this idea that everything can be scripted, then you're going to miss out. You're not going to be able to learn the thing that really is most important because before anything else can happen, you have to be able to connect with the person you're you're talking to that's a prospective buyer. You need to be able to find some common ground. You need to be able to establish credibility and start building some trust. And if you can't do that, then all the curiosity in the world, all the understanding, all the generosity in the world is going to go nowhere. So one of the key things for new sellers to really focus on is that the way you make yourself interesting to someone else is to be truly interested in them and so i think back to my beginning of my career when i was selling large computer systems to the construction industry fresh out of college i was 21 i looked half my age practically talking to these ceos and founders of these construction companies definitely blue collar I knew nothing about business to speak of, knew virtually nothing about my product that time, but people were giving me their time. I sat back and thought about it afterwards. It's like, why were they doing that? Well, it's because I was interested. I was, when I came out of school, I was like I said, no discernible job skills, except an insatiable curiosity. And so I just wanted to learn. And these people gave me their time. And I said, on the face of it, maybe I had nothing to offer them. But I was someone that wanted to learn, and they knew that if they could help me understand what was important to them, I could help them. But I was only able to do that because I was able to connect, find a common ground, build some rapport. And there's sometimes this emphasis. You see this a little bit more and more is people saying, oh, yeah, buyers don't have time for small talk. This rapport building, that's overstated, that's importance. And it's really not the case for human beings. There are bookshelves of books written about the importance of small talk and rapport building and science behind it. It's hugely essential. So I love this phrase that somebody used as a guest on my show. She said, you know, we used to call sort of, white-collar workers back in the 80s. We all became knowledge workers. And to a point you were making earlier about the fact that we all, even if we're not in sales, we are selling something. We work with and through other people. She said, yeah, now we're all interaction workers. We work through interacting with other people. And Jeff Colvin, who's written several best-selling books, one including Humans Are Underrated, talks, which he's writing about the future of work in the future. He says, you know, the people who are going to thrive in an increasingly digital age are those that learn to become more intensely human those that learn how to collaborate effectively with others. And so these human skills I write about in the book, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity, they're important in all walks of life, not just sales, but especially in sales.
1: Andy, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad we got to bring this to light. And I do have to ask you one final question, which is you're on the Selling with Love podcast. So I need to ask you, what does Selling with Love mean to you?
0: (laughs) You know, for me, what it means is selling without judgment. And that's so often in sales is people, well, not just sales, but in all walks of life, but we're talking about sales is people want to prejudge an opportunity, prejudge a person they're talking to. And I found that one of the keys for me in some of the biggest successes I've had is by not judging people, by being interested in them, learning what's important to them. Even if on the surface it seemed like, yeah, maybe there's nothing there, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And you'd be surprised what you find out and learn about people.
1: So being non judgmental. I absolutely love it. Andy, thank you so much for your time. For all of you listening, this was a fantastic conversation. Again, if you want to learn how to sell without selling out, a guide to success on your earned terms. I just picked up a copy myself so I can go through this. I feel like there's so much more I need to unpack from this message. You've gotten a taste on this podcast and I would encourage everybody else who's feeling any kind of reluctance in sales. You're looking at it still with a bit of a lens of, ah, oh, this is manipulation. This is sleazy. I don't want to do it. I don't think I can do it. This is the book you'll want to pick up because it's really going to show you what are the values that you can embody to be effective in sales and i promise it's going to be aligned much more with the values that you have the integrity you want to keep and the impact you want to make and that's truly what we're here for to be able To sell more effectively without selling out so i'm so excited that we had andy on the show sharing this beautiful message so make sure you go into the show notes we will put a link directly to his book and other literatures that he has written that are all fantastic andy again thank you so much for bringing this message to light much needed thank you jason everybody's excited to see it and i'm so excited for everybody tuning in until next time keep selling with love I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms?